walking through this life is difficult. And God warned them. When Adam and Eve committed sin, he told them from this point on, it's going to be painful. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be grief. Nothing's going to come easy. There's going to be work that demands extreme effort on your part. There's going to be all these things that have to happen that are going to make it difficult. But in the end, I will provide that redeemer. I will provide that savior. I will provide that love. I will provide what you need to walk through this life. And I am convinced, and I don't know that I can verify this biblically, but I am convinced that in heaven, the only scars we're going to see are Jesus's. Ours won't be there, physical or emotional. Because one of my favorite verses that reminds me all the time of the hope we have in Christ is the prophecy of Isaiah that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. That by the very stripes, by the very wounds on him, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, our friend Jesus, by those wounds, we were healed. And that healing gives us character. That healing begins to put things into our life that sustain us and aid us and help us in the things that we want to accomplish and the things that we need to accomplish, even if life gets difficult. That character comes to the surface in the hardest and most difficult moments. And as John finishes his letter to the young church in Ephesus, he reminds them of several characteristics, character traits that their faith, this relationship with Jesus creates in them that will sustain them and help them as they live their life each and every day, doing the same things we're doing, dealing with their children, dealing with relational issues, dealing with work, dealing with conflict, dealing with struggles, dealing with economic deprivation, the same things they struggled with, we struggle with, and the generations who follow us struggle with it. But our character can be refined to show those things that are affirmative and positive in our lives. Characteristics like the ability to pray, intercede, constantly communicate with God on our behalf and on behalf of the people we love. To be able to have empathy, to live a life where instead of judgment, we are overwhelmed with compassion for those who are being wounded, even if their decisions are wounding themselves. Issues like lifestyle and being able to make decisions in a lifestyle that characterizes who Jesus is as he lives in us and who we are as a new birth recipient of the change and the new creation that Christ makes possible. Being able to go through life with a sense of confidence, of knowing, of knowing no matter how difficult this life is, there is an eternal life. Absolutely perfect. I mean, John himself, before he wrote this letter, had the vision from the island of Patmos, where he saw one of the most tender and compassionate perspectives and visions of who God is. A God who will literally come to us and wipe the tears 
from our eyes. I love the way John says it because he assumes that there actually won't be tears in heaven because there will no longer be pain. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be the things that create such grief and sorrow and injury. Those things do not exist in eternity. But John double reassures as a result of that vision in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 when he says, even if that was to happen, even if I was to shed a tear in heaven, my tender, loving, heavenly Father will wipe those tears from my eyes. So I ask God to create in me the kind of character that sustains in this life and reflects the life I'm looking forward to. And that's exactly what John teaches us in this letter. We're in 1 John chapter 5. We're in the very last few verses of this letter. Verse 13 is where it starts. And he one more time states the summary that has guided every word he has written to that young church. In verse 13 he says, I have written these things. Everything in my letter was written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything John's written to us so far is so that we would have unwavering confidence about our future. And think about it for a moment. In a world that is so unstable all the time, John understood what God wanted to accomplish in our lives, that there was stability ahead and to be anticipated. I have written these things, he says, to you who believe in the Son of God, who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, who believe in the Christ, the anointed one. You who believe in him have absolute assurance of eternal life. Because sometimes this life can be difficult, that the only hope, the only possible light in the midst of the darkness, the only possible sense of direction and finding true north to navigate life is to anticipate what is ahead, being home with the Father. Think about what it's like when you get to go see somebody. A number of our families are on live stream today. And let me welcome live stream. Let me real quick remind those who are on YouTube that if you want to live chat, turn in prayer requests, make any kind of decision or request information from the church or counseling or help from the church on your decisions, go to our website, go to fbctomball.org, go to the live button and it will take you to the hosting of the live stream and you can chat, you can talk to one another, you can take notes there, you can find the Bible verses, everything you need. We're still on YouTube, we will always be on YouTube. But for the chat purposes, all of that takes place through the website now. In those moments of going home someplace, having a place. And so a lot of our young families are traveling because of spring break and they're headed home. I've been talking to people all week long and it's been kind of the same story. We're gonna go see my parents. In some cases, people are seeing grandparents that they haven't seen all year. As things begin to, to, to loosen up a little bit and it gets a little bit safer, people are gonna actually be able to see their family. And you know how that feels emotionally. Whether you're driving or flying, you're anticipating getting there, you're anticipating arriving, and that anticipation drives you to make the journey that may not be all that great. I mean, I've, some friends of mine here are headed out, they're gonna, they're gonna go to Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, North Oklahoma, to visit family. 
And I've driven from Houston to Oklahoma. The only drive worse is from Houston to Amarillo. I mean, there's nothing to see till you get to Tulsa. When you finally get to Tulsa, there's this little oasis in the middle of nothing. What drives you, what keeps you going forward, once you get out of Bucky's territory, is that you're in Brahms territory. No, that's not. That's not what drives you. What drives you is that you're going to see somebody you want to see. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. We'll see everybody we want to see. And we'll no longer hurt. And we'll no longer be exhausted and tired. Because heaven is perfect. And that character of confidence in our eternal destination drives us, helps us, and assists us as we live this life. But John understood that in our Christian character, we absolutely needed to grasp the reality of prayer, the necessity of prayer, and even in a sense, the character of prayer of knowing those prayers are not meaningless or unheard. In verse 14, he says this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, We know that we have what we have asked of him. Yes, there's that caveat that says we have to pray according to his will. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus set that example for us. But sometimes people, when they talk about prayer, they get hung up on that and don't fully recognize what John is saying. If you talk to the Father... He listens. And if he listens, he doesn't ignore. It's inconceivable. Some people have had experiences in family relationships that weren't that good. And maybe it's hard to understand a heavenly father who is so intimately, compassionately concerned that he listens to every word you speak. But he not only listens, but he acts. He acts on our behalf. Begin to read through your Bible and find all the various definitions of prayer that remind us of that. Like in Psalms 18, when God himself says, when you pray, when you begin to speak to me in the, in the clamor of all the noise in the palace in the kingdom, I will stop and turn my ear towards you. I mean, I, you know, we struggle with this. It's hard to grasp having that much attention because it's impossible to do. You've already experienced it this morning, going to Bible study, going about your activities. If you're on live stream and you've been at home, you know, you know what it's like. You walk by, my wife deals with this every day. She walks by, she says something to me and I don't understand it or I don't quite hear it the way I used to be able to. And her response, if she gets a response, it's like, what? I try to be polite and say, pardon me? But it's got to be exhausting for her to listen to me over and over and over again, ask her to repeat whatever she said because of my potentially physically inability to hear it, as well as maybe my attention span ability to hear it. That never happens. You have never uttered a prayer at any point in your life and God said, what? Pardon? Excuse me? Now, 
The people who heard you pray may have said that, but he listened. And, and John's saying simply, if he listens, then you have confidence. And this confidence builds in, in your character and it allows you to be a person of prayer, knowing that when you pray, God is going to answer. The pastor emeritus of my last church, he was the pastor of that church back in the 1950s and, and uh, he had gone away, taught at seminary and came back and was pastor emeritus while I was there, while I was his pastor and, and we became friends and, and we, he would do, we'd have just Monday morning coffees together and we'd talk about things and, and he would always tell me, he said, James, prayer is relatively simple. God has the right to say yes, God has the right to say no, and God has the right to say not today. But then he would always remind me, but James, God always answers. He always answers. He's always listening. And so our confidence in eternity, our confidence in prayer, our ability to pray becomes a part of our character, becomes who we are. So when we have difficulties, our response is to pray. Our response isn't to immediately try to figure out how we can solve it. Sometimes we do that, but our character needs to be a character that says, I'm going to pray first because I have resource available that is so much greater than anything I can accomplish myself. So let me pray and hear what he has to say. And then that gives us the ability to be empathetic. I I think more empathy than sympathy. We don't just feel sorry for people that are in trouble, but we understand and we care and we're compassionate. And if you look at verse 16, it gives us the ability to take this prayer that we have so much assurance about and apply it to our friends. Now this is gonna seem counterintuitive because what typically happens in most groups is that if somebody is struggling, there is the human sinful side of the equation that has a temptation, has a tendency to want to judge. Somebody makes a mistake. Somebody sins. Somebody goes off into a lifestyle that is contrary to scripture, contrary to what it means to be a believer in Christ. And our tendency is to condemn. I think partially because we've been there and we just want to make sure somebody else feels bad the way we felt bad. Sometimes maybe because we forget the heart of God. God never accepts our sin. But God always remedies our sin. I am, I'm grateful for people in my life that do that. I am thankful that my doctor never accepts my diabetes. And I am thankful that he always looks for a remedy to it. I am thankful that when I discuss with him the things that I need to do to successfully navigate that disease with my life, he's always positive about the ability to do that and the ability to control. Because I don't need to go to my doctor's office and be told, James, during quarantine, you gained 10 pounds. I mean, all I have to do is watch the the live stream tomorrow and review it like we, all of us review it every Monday morning um, and realize that during quarantine and now with a life on camera, I've gained 30 pounds. You know, I don't need him to tell me that. I need him to do exactly what he does. He compassionately looks at me and he says, James, cut a few more of the carbs. Don't give up. Keep working on this. Wouldn't it be nice, almost idyllic, to be a part of a fellowship 
where when we made bad choices, and those bad choices lead to sin, that our friends looked at us and said, I'm sorry, I'm concerned. Let me pray for you. Let me help you. Let me assist you. Because it's the, it is the proverbial teaching of Ecclesiastes that when one falls down, pity that man or that woman who has no one with them to help pick them up. When will the church learn that we are more about helping people get up than we are about keeping them on the ground? We're not meant to live on the ground. We are not snakes. We do not crawl in the dust. We are not hogs. We do not waller in mud. We are not chimpanzees and never have been at any point prior to this moment. We are the creation of God knitted and crafted together in our mother's womb. When will we finally learn that it is about helping one another up instead of hoping they continue to stay down? If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, and this is where you're going to get confused because you're going to go, well, which sin leads to death? I'm going to make it real easy for you. There is not a single scholar in the world who knows. Most Bible commentators who are honest with you will tell you, we have no idea. Obviously, the crowd that John was writing to in the first century AD, they understood, but we don't. 2,000 years later, this is one of those places we don't. So don't miss the thrust of the package in this word because you don't understand one part of it and miss the whole idea of what's being accomplished. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin, let's just leave it there for a moment. He should ask and God will give life to him. That same prayer that God always listens to is the first prayer you should pray when your friend, your coworker, your Bible study teacher, your pastors, your church leadership commit a sin. Pray. Pray. And God restores life he goes on to say in verse 17, I am not saying that he should pray about, that, about the unrighteousness that is sin, but there is a sin that doesn't lead. Excuse me, pick it back up. Verse, verse 16, he should ask and God will give life to him to those who commit a sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. John's not cutting slack here on what the unrighteousness is. But he is creating an atmosphere and he wants to create an atmosphere in the church where sin is dealt with as unrighteousness. And how do you deal with unrighteousness? You confess it and let God forgive. John's already addressed that earlier. We studied that. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, listen to Jesus. That afternoon, in the marketplace, drawing in the dust, looking at the crowd and saying, which of you, which of you has the authority to throw the first stone? Because your sin wasn't important enough or significant enough. When will we learn to help one another get up instead of trying to keep everybody down? Paul said, 
that it is our responsibility in Galatians chapter 6, it is our responsibility to rescue our brothers and sisters when they sin. And I'll be honest with you, the, the scars that John talked about are real and church scars, I think, are some of the worst scars in the world because the church ought to be the one place you can trust. We're real bad sometimes about making all kinds of proclamations and declarations about other people's sin. And we're real slow sometimes to see that fellow believer committing that sin and asking God to give him or her life. Let our character be empathetic because the truth is, like Paul said to the church in Corinth, but except for the grace of God, I would be there too. There is nobody in this room, there is nobody on live stream who has figured out perfection. In fact, perfection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is only attained in heaven. So if you think you're perfect, I got good news for you. You are an absolute sinner and an abomination to the eyes of God, but I'm going to pray for you. Nicer than that recognize our sin, recognize their sin, and then pray. Because the goal, what is our goal? Our goal is to strive after holiness. We want to be a holy people. Acknowledging that we're not a holy people just is the first step in becoming a holy people. I have to acknowledge I'm sinful so that God can forgive me. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I became a believer in Christ because I knew I had sinned. And I wanted God to change my life. And now in a redemptive atmosphere, in a redemptive fellowship, in a place that's more concerned about where we ultimately end up and how we get there respectfully with the kind of character that sustains us in the storms and troubles and afflictions of life, we empathize and we pray for and we assist and we rescue and we help. Forgiveness is not an option for a believer because we know the extent to which we've been forgiven and scripture teaches us because of that we must forgive. It's not an option in the drop-down menu of our life. We are to be characterized by empathy and forgiveness which allows us then to live an unwavering lifestyle. We know, he says in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one, who has, the one who is born of God keeps him, referring to Jesus, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the world is under the sway of the evil. We live in an evil world. That's not, that's not disputable. It's obvious. We see it every day. But we don't have to participate in that. Out of the compassion of the empathy gives us now the ability it's so much easier to live righteously. It's so much easier to live seeking holiness when we know that we're forgiven and that forgiveness reminds us of the extent of the love and so the deepest desire of our heart is to please Jesus. And now we know that we're in a fellowship, we're in a partnership of believers who will help us accomplish that purpose. Because I will stumble, I will fall on this pursuit of holiness. And you'll stand with me. 
And we'll confess our sins. We'll let God forgive us our sins. And we'll make a commitment that changes our lifestyle so that there is a distinctiveness. So it is obvious that the church is a holy place. And our lifestyle reflects it tomorrow morning. When I sign into my Zoom class for school, when I head into the hallways to head to class in person, when I walk into the building or I sign into a, a video conferencing call at work, when I walk into my child's nursery, when I step past my teenage child's filthy room and the smell comes out from underneath the door, when I get home and things just aren't clicking right between me and my spouse and, and there's troubles or there's difficulties, when I go out in my front yard and the neighbor who, who constantly criticizes everything about my yards outside and I'm trying to avoid them, in all of those moments, I can continue living a lifestyle that reflects who I belong to. I am no longer my own. I am Jesus's. We get that. We live in Texas. We're very proud of who we are. I'm just saying, and John's just saying, let's be proud of who we are in Jesus, which creates the loyalty that John concludes his letter in verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. That is our identity. Our identity is nowhere else now. We are in Jesus. He is the true God and he is the source of eternal life. So little children, and that's John saying that affectionately to his young congregation, little children, let's live in such a way that we keep ourselves from idols. And idols are real simple. You don't have to try to get all complex about it. It's anything that distracts us from God. Anything that distracts us from God becomes idolatry. Our lifestyle help guides us and our lifestyle is predicated upon our loyalty to Jesus. And again, I don't have to tell you, because we can walk through the parking lot and show every college sticker that's represented in this congregation. You understand loyalty. I'm just saying ratchet it up a notch and be loyal to Jesus before you're loyal to anything or anyone else. And you'll be surprised, I think, this is what I've noticed over the years, the more loyal I am to Jesus, the better all the rest of the relationships are. I'm more loyal to my wife, I'm more loyal to my children, I'm more loyal to my workplace, I am more loyal in every area of my life because I've learned to be loyal to Jesus. So take these characteristics and let them become a part of everyday living, the confidence we have, especially the confidence in eternity. The prayer and the intercession that's a part of asking God for things that he's answering us for. The empathy that is deeply, compassionately concerned for those around us who are being injured. Even if they're injuring themselves by their own bad choices. Love them and draw them back. And then live a lifestyle that sets an example and distinguishes as a believer. And then let that lifestyle be absolute, 100% exclusive loyalty to Jesus. Love him and him alone. Live for him and him alone. And everything else that demands your life, I believe, will fall into place.